0: Hey, everyone. We're looking to add a new member to our engineering team. Ideally, we're looking for a senior-level mechanical design engineer in the Phoenix area who has experience designing custom automated machines, equipment, and test fixtures. Also, having working experience with controls and system integration is a plus. If you'd like to apply or suggest someone, please email us at info at test fixturedesign.com. The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities.
1: Enjoy the show. As the quality manager at PSN, what I developed was a quality system that is intended to avoid unforced errors.
0: Hello and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Matt Heidecker, who is the Vice President and Quality Manager at Plastics Services Network, or PSN for short, uh, an engineering services firm based in Pennsylvania. Matt has a bachelor's degree in plastics engineering technology and a PhD in materials science and engineering. Matt, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So what made you decide to become uh, an engineer slash scientist? Because I think you have both titles.
1: I do. It's the best and the worst of both worlds. Uh, <laughs> and you can ask my wife that. She'll tell you that. So, uh, so I did my undergraduate in um, engineering technology and uh, in the realm of plastics. So as I started to get towards the end of that program, I really understood that there was a a big gap, which is what happens at the molecular level. So I understood how to make things, I understood how to engineer things, but I truly didn't understand at the molecular level how stuff actually worked. So uh, in the PhD process, what I was able to do in material science is truly understand from the atomic level all the way up through the finished molded goods or, or finished product, uh, and then post-mortem, you know, how it fails and the full life cycle of a, of a material. So by understanding that full plethora of information from the atoms to, you know, end of life of a product, I was capable of, of truly understanding how to develop products. And it was, it was something that was really interesting to me. That's a fascinating answer. Um,
0: our engineering manager, Michael Hadley, I had him on the show way back towards the beginning when we started. And his answer to that same question was very similar to yours. He said, I wanted to understand how the world worked. And engineering seemed to me uh, to be the best way to, to go about understanding that. Your, your answer is, is interesting because it takes it beyond just the mechanical universe. You, you take it down to the molecular level. Uh, I'm curious this is kind of an open-ended vague question but let, let's see what you can do with it i'm curious were there any like big insights that you had as you were studying down at the atomic level oh that's that's why the world works the way it does or uh, any you know just big takeaways or big insights that that you had
1: during that time i do and the reality was it depends And folks always ask the question. So when I went into my PhD program, I expected to step out of it and literally know everything. And the reality was I I didn't. What I learned was how to learn. So what I gained from the molecular level is that It behaves completely different than the macro level so if you look at atoms at the atomic level they behave differently than if you have something in the bulk form and the easiest analogy i have for that is if you were to take uh, an aluminum plate or a steel plate and it's an inch thick if you made that one atom thick that material still has some of the same properties but it behaves completely differently So that whole construct, again, molecular level versus the macromolecular level, provided me with an insight into the fact that it always depends. There's really no true answer to any question because it it depends upon the construct. So the ability to learn and to understand how things work both at the molecular and the macromolecular level made me a better engineer and a better scientist. Mm, I love that
0: it makes me think of um, one of the insights that i've had in a, a mechanical sense um, the the area moment of inertia uh, i've i 've always found to be fascinating because it illustrates so beautifully how just a really simple change in an already existing shape can have such a profound effect you know you, you take something that 's maybe uh, thin in one direction but thick in the other direction, and if you hold it in the thin direction and apply load in that direction then it bends easily but if you just rotate it 90 degrees so your your, your thick side is now aligned with the application of force it it
1: becomes very stiff and just you know things like that to me are so interesting they are and if you step into mother nature that's where you truly find a lot of fascinating innovations because nature itself has built its own construct and has survived for hundreds of thousands of years so if if you're curious as to a good place to start if you're stumped going into nature and looking for your fundamental problem and, and starting to look for solutions that are outside the the box is is interesting because you know if you look at it from a classical perspective and and that's what a lot of uh, high level academics will do they'll, they'll look at it from the the theoretical perspective and the reality is sometimes you have to step outside of theory and you have to to go into actual practice to understand how things truly do work uh, because in a lot of cases it's not well understood it's not well defined and uh, that's been the biggest takeaway i would say from my career thus far is that if you look at the modern marvels of the world they're actually a lot simpler than what you might uh, imagine um, and to me that's the truly fascinating aspect of this
0: Fantastic. I love it. I, I like that you brought up nature, right? Mother Nature has iterated for millions of years to get right all of the, uh, the different systems that are uh, successfully in place to this day. That can be a great tool for brainstorming, I think, too. If you're, you're stuck with an idea and you can't quite find the answer, maybe take a step back and, well, are there applications in nature that might be relevant? What, what can we learn there? That's correct. Uh, you spent uh, a lot of your career researching polymers. And uh, we design consumer products for some of our customers and, and typically turn to one of a small handful of uh, go-to plastic materials, such as, you know, nylon or ABS or PC ABS, Acetyl Polypro. Um, uh, are there some polymer materials for, for common manufacturing processes like injection molding that, that engineering teams should be considering that maybe aren't as popular as the standard half dozen that most of us rely on? it's a good question
1: and it's a difficult question because the world is is changing around us if we start to look at it from the circular economy perspective um, we start to think about how things again are actually made so if we think about consumer products why have we been able to extend the shelf life for food products it's because the packaging in a lot of cases is using five or six or seven different layers of a material in order to provide unique barrier properties like for example one one material is going to provide you with good uh, co2 uh, barrier properties another is going to provide good oxygen barrier another is going to provide a good water barrier if we think about that from a, a circular economy perspective because you've added those different layers those materials are incompatible so the ability to fundamentally you know recycle or reuse them or separate them is difficult so if i look at where the industry is moving um in the future, again, looking at it, that circular economy, how to make things more recyclable. Uh, I would say that if there was one specific material from both a medical device and a consumer products and consumer packaging perspective that uh, is underutilized, I would probably say uh, co-polyester materials. And, and the reason I say that is from a circular economy perspective or a um, the ability to recycle and reuse. The companies in that space are starting to develop monomeric recycling uh, mechanisms, so they're able to take a used polymer good and turn it back into the individual feedstocks or the individual components that are reacted together to make that material in the first place. And why that becomes important is you're not requiring additional oil, you know, from the ground. Mm-hmm. Take that material back into its its basic starting materials. In addition to that, uh, copolyesters or polyesters are one of the few materials that you can truly do bio-based feedstocks in, in, in the first place. Uh, Coca-Cola was the first with a plant-based bottle um, where they're taking uh, the, the reaction intermediaries and the, the precursors from sources that are truly renewable, like uh, sugarcane and uh, things along those lines. So uh, it's a difficult question, and I, and I took it in a unique way because I look at it more of from uh, what the future trends are and that's that's where I came up with PET are,
0: are there any um, uh, industry brands that you like for co polyesters you know for example uh, PC and macrolon that kind of relationship
1: Eastman produces a, a couple of the triton materials those are um, really the materials that come to mind and you you find a lot of them in Uh, some of the newer consumer products. Uh, For example, we have an espresso here at at home because we're uh, espresso snobs. And, uh, you know, you can tell based on the sheen of the the material that they're using a Nisman Triton material for that. Um, Interesting. Great, great answer.
0: Along those same lines, are you aware of any good resources that engineering teams can turn to that will help them select the right
1: material for their application? It's another good question. Um, and that's, that's been a question that I've gotten throughout my entire career. So when I first started at Emerson back in 2007, they were using a couple hundred different grades of plastic across their 50 plus divisions. And there was really no collated resource that said, use this material for this application, this material for this application. And my ultimate answer is, is a little bit of a cop out, but at, at the end of the day, We've worked, uh, PSN, Plastic Services Network, we've worked with a lot of our customers to develop tailored databases for themselves. So what does that mean? We will go in and characterize the material from a mechanical and physical perspective and also a chemical perspective. So if it's a medical device or consumer product, we'll put those materials through the actual application rigor. So if it's a medical device and it's going to go through X number of cleaning cycles, we'll actually put that material through those cleaning cycles and recreate what actually happens to the material. We then characterize that and build it into custom databases for the individual um, end user uh, using things like Granta or UL Prospector as the bolt-on to you know, a simple spreadsheet-based system in which we've already characterized the material. So uh, as far as, as resources are concerned, it's it's difficult because there are so many individual grades and to generalize performance in a specific application is very very difficult because it's, it's tr- it truly comes down to the details the the atoms matter and uh, particularly when it comes to chemical resistance at PSN we've developed uh proprietary to us techniques for doing chemical exposure that focus on those application based situations because if you follow the standards they're really good the standards exist for a reason. It provides a refereed way to test the material. The challenge is it's not a deterministic outcome. And that's been, from, from my perspective, my customers always say, I want to know how it's actually going to behave. That's where we come in. That's what we've developed is a way to test the material so that when you're done with the, the life cycle test, those properties, that's what you're going to see after five years or 10 years or 20 years in the environment. That's our secret sauce. That's our, that's our special sauce that type of database is infinitely more beneficial to the end user because then they can use uh, structural analysis and do um, a true deterministic life modeling of that individual good that's the unique part about what we do so is there a a specific database that exists no it's difficult to find one of those Um, there's some nice uh, polymer handbooks that have you know general chemical properties but, but again not to to go back to the the uh, constant answer of it depends, but it truly does, and that's where details really do matter. Does PSN have databases that it sells publicly, or are these, you know, customer and project specific? They're customer specific, and you know, when we generate the data, it's for that specific customer for that Got specific it. use. And okay, um, you know, from and we also actually work for a lot of the material manufacturers um, for that specific reason and. Uh, we generate the data. If you see those smiley, frowny face tables of chemical compatibility, uh, <laughs> we try to avoid generating those types of tables. But a lot of our customers end up wanting those because it's simple for everybody to understand. But again, we've seen it as simple as changing a concentration of a solution by two or three percent. You can go from surviving 20 years of life to surviving you know, a day of life. That's that's how critical uh, some of the details that go into the experimental design truly are. Yeah. Um, I'll throw one, a resource out there. It's a very
0: you know high-level place to start, and it's really just some of the material properties. It doesn't have any of the deterministic factors like you were mentioning, but i found valuable. is this website, makeitfrom.com. You ever heard of that website? I've not, actually. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like MatWeb. I think most people are aware of MatWeb but uh, a lot cleaner and easier to read and makes it easy to do comparisons between one material and another. Again, just really looking at mechanical, thermal properties, things like that. Um, One of the areas that you worked um, while at Emerson was was material conversions. Uh, And in your description, one of the things you said was metals to plastics. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that. Were you trying to develop Plastics with mature properties that you traditionally find in metals?
1: A little bit of both. So in, in that regard, the goal was metals tend to be heavy and, and bulky. So if you're thinking about uh, compressor systems uh, that are variable speed and, and run at very high velocities, the moment of inertia becomes challenging. So the ability to uh, lightweight those components to reduce the wear and tear on things becomes advantageous. Um, secondarily, uh, if you can reduce weight, you can reduce shipping costs. Um, if you can change the the manufacturing equation, you might improve reliability as well. And because non-metallic materials in general have, uh, are you have different methods of processing them. So you can blow mold, you can injection mold, you can extrusion blow mold, you can injection blow mold, um, you can thermoform, you can generate structures that are different from a physical form than you can out of metal. So in in certain cases you can actually create a a component that solves two or three problems uh, and reduces the overall number of of components within a system, which also provides a, a benefit to a customer, if you will.
0: Sure. Have any of those materials made their way into commercialization that we could use today?
1: Yeah. So, from you know, as far as materials were concerned that uh, we used or I I developed or worked with companies to put onto the market, uh, there is one specific one that uh, I was able to get a patent on an application for, uh, and it was using one hundred percent post-consumer recycled nylon for internal compressor applications and uh it was in the depths of the recession back in 2009 and and one of my early mentors mark scancarella he was my boss at the time he's one of the most he's one of the best people i've ever met Uh, i went to him and i said hey look i think i've got a way for us to both save money and help the environment and with the cost of oil being north of 100 bucks a barrel at the time he said what is it i said well you're going to take carpet and you're going to turn it into uh plastics uh, reused plastic and you're going to put it inside the compressor. And he's like, okay, <laughs> I like, go do it. So I'm, I flew down to Johnsonville, South Carolina, and I met with a uh, woman engineered resins. And, um, uh, in this particular case, this was a new, uh, trade name for them it was called the Ecolon. And it truly was taking everything that came out of the carpet and recycling it. So, you know, you had some polypropylene in there. You had some nylon. You had some calcium carbonate and towel that were left over from the polypropylene backing from the carpet. But what they did was take the, uh, mess, if you will, out of the equation. And they created a 100% post-consumer recycled material. I mean, I, when you walk into the facility, uh, it stunk like <laughs> nothing else. I mean, you would want to walk in there without the ability to smell. Oh wow! <laughs> it, it was bad, but it turned it into you know a plastic. With if you put it in your hand, you'd have no idea it came from. Oh, how cool! And from that, you know, we were able to save hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, from you know just keeping things out of the landfill and returning wow. things that were used by a consumer into an actual industrial component. Um so from from my perspective, I think that was probably the one of my greatest early career achievements just because uh, there was an environmental aspect. Uh, there was uh, everybody was concerned about their job at the time, so I was able to save some money for the company and and give a feel good story. so that that's one where I was particularly proud of it.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that now the the material that was used was that. The waste discarded during the manufacturing process of carpet, or was that actual like used carpet that then came back and was recycled? Oh, legitimately
1: used carpet. So Uh, the which is why it stunk so much. Yeah. So the CEO. (laughs) Yeah, you had no idea what you were getting. Oh Uh, man! (laughs) So got ten years. People's foot odors stinking up the place. Dog urine, cat urine. There you go. So what the CEO at the time of. For Wellman, what he did is he came from, uh, I believe, Home Depot, and he created a series of, of um, waste retrieval systems across the southeast. So he put these bins in, and the contractors, uh, I didn't know a lot about the whole process, but contractors actually had to pay when they were pulling carpet out of a home to throw that carpet into the landfill. Oh. So he charged them less to throw it into his- Oh, landlord. Wow. And then he yeah. would pick the trailers up and take them to Johnsonville. So, so he, he doubled it. Yeah, he doubled it. So nice. you've, got, you've got the carpet, and again, it's got the backing, it's got everything. And they had this proprietary equipment that they developed over the years to strip everything off of it and to take it through washing processes and separation processes. And then they were making 20,000-pound batches, uh, and they were constantly mixing them, which is what really allowed them to create a homogenous product. And what, what sold me is the likes of GM and Ford had taken some of their other materials and had spec them in, in internal or uh, under the hood applications for the automotive industry. So if you, if you can get a GM spec or a, a Ford spec, you're in a pretty good position as a material manufacturer because you know that that automotive standard requires a, a high degree of quality to go into it. Um, and they basically took that and applied it to the, the Ecolon product line and created a little bit of a different product and commercialized it, gave it a UL yellow card and the whole kit and caboodle. And it was just an interesting process. And Brilliant. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, It reminds me a lot of medical device reprocessing. We, we do quite a bit of work in that space in terms of test fixtures and equipment. And um, same thing, you know, the well, I guess the reprocessors don't necessarily get paid to take the discarded devices away, but they get them for free, right? They're getting their raw materials essentially for free. And then they reprocess, reprocess them and sell them back to hospitals. So uh, th- this is probably a good good opportunity for me to take just a quick pause and share with everyone that testfixturedesign.com is where you can learn more about how we help medical device engineering teams who need turnkey automated equipment or custom test fixtures to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification, or validation testing on their devices. We're speaking with Matt Heidecker today, who is VP and quality manager at PSN. And uh, that's right. Very nice title there. Um, uh, Let me ask you about another company at which you worked previously. This one was Stress Engineering Services. And I looked at their website and it looks like they do everything. I mean. They have their hands in, in oil and gas and consumer products and testing and medical devices, pharma, aerospace, power, forensics. The list just kind of goes on. I, I'm, they're very much, it seems, a an engineering services business, um, maybe the quintessential engineering services business with all the different uh, areas in which they work. I am always interested in hearing about how other engineering services companies work. And I wondered, did did stress engineering services have any procedures or best practices that you found especially helpful in helping engineering teams succeed on their projects?
1: It's a good question. Um, It's a difficult question to answer because with different units, different business units, there, there's really, and, and that's really the challenge in an engineering services firm that that's the biggest challenge for an engineering services firm is developing a quality system that truly covers all of your risk. Um, and it it's, it's difficult. I mean that, that there's, there's really no magic bullet if you will, to specifically protect against, um, you know, something happening. And I guess, One thing that I did take away from there is a a good friend of mine, Chris Alexander, had a a large write-off. And you know, I like to make analogies to sports. And you know, as the quality manager at PSN, what I developed was a a quality system that is intended to avoid unforced errors. So if you're if you're thinking about that, and you're thinking about in the realm of a football game. For the first twenty eight minutes of each half in, uh, in an NFL game you know things move at the pace that the teams decide to move at uh, you can go faster you can go slower it's it's up to the team if you're trying to score in the last two minutes though you've got to really speed things up and that's where unforced errors happen and you know, I was watching the Steelers play the Colts this past weekend and you know, the Colts had a third in forever and at the end of the first half and the probability of them succeeding in that was like less than one percent yet they uh, were able to game Pittsburgh into not calling a timeout, which didn't preserve the time and was truly an unforced error. You know, when we talk about customers, they will come to you with immediate and urgent needs. And that is typically where the unforced errors happen. So if you're in the realm of a testing project, uh, and this happens at PSN all the time, you're in the realm of a testing project and, and they say, hey, uh, you know, we need this result by this time because we're in a lying down situation. You know, from a quality management perspective, from a from a customer perspective, you want to help them immediately. You want to do that. The unforced error would be not properly documenting that. And that's what I learned from Chris Alexander is that developing a strong, robust system that documents the engineering change is important to ensure that you don't end up in a situation where you have had an unforced error because you're moving faster than what you normally would. And again, it's. Verbal in in the realm of a quality system is is not good enough. You have to have a paper trail. You have to have a document. And that's going to prevent you from spiking the ball on fourth down and (laughs) turning the ball over on downs. I mean, that's an unforced error. Your ability to put the checks and balances in place to support you in those times of urgent need are critical for a healthy quality system. because it's The reality is you cannot make a system. You cannot make a quality system that eliminates human error. Um, and, you know, whether a, a, an operator reads Fahrenheit versus Celsius, there's nothing that I can truly do to make that operator, that technician or that chemist realize that Celsius is on the sheet and you're doing it in Fahrenheit. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of checks and balances that you can put in a place. There's no amount of redundancy you can do to prevent that from happening. That's 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 an error. That's a human error. It's the unforced errors that are truly preventable that you're trying to capture and and prevent. And and that's where robust documentation comes into play. I really like how you're framing this using the phrase unforced errors.
0: I'm not sure I've heard it put like that. Uh, Quality systems are in place to prevent unforced errors. And that's a, that's a great segue into some of the other questions I wanted to ask you, which really are related to quality systems. Um, So uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. The second half of your title is quality manager. Um, full disclosure, typically when I hear anything related to quality, I have to strain to keep my eyes open. Um, however, however, and this is a big, big butt here, you and I had a conversation last month and it, it genuinely changed my opinion on the subject and actually got me really excited about uh, quality and, and that topic. And that was one of the reasons I, I wanted to ask you to join me on the podcast, because I, I think a lot of others will find um, your take on quality systems both refreshing and, and uh, delightfully practical. So uh, with that said, implementing a quality system can be uh, a daunting task, and I imagine many companies don't formally do so because the, the perceived level of investment and effort required to do so is just too big of a deterrent. However, that wasn't necessarily your experience. And maybe can we can we start this section by having you just share your experience implementing the quality system
1: that you use at PSN? Sure, I can. And, you know, at a high level, when Mike, our owner and I talked about it, he had some strong feelings about it and they were warranted, you know, from our business. PSN's core business is responsiveness and it's the customer field so any customer can pick up the phone and call a technical person at any point in time and get help why is that important you don't have to make your way through four levels of sales to get to the right person when you're doing a project you get to speak to technical people you get to ask technical questions you're not playing the game of telephone so understanding that these things work exceptionally well for our business we had to preserve them so from from that perspective how do you start and create a quality system that creates that doesn't create additional work for the employees? Uh, that was a difficult part. And you know as I sat back and I read through the quality standards and truly started to dive into what quality means for an organization, it it's not intended. there is no prescribed pathway. You know you you you're creating something that works for your organization something that provides a background for your organization to make its way through the decision tree you know you can spend an infinite amount of time creating a quality system and have just as many errors or just as many nonconformances as a as a company that spends you know a day putting together a quality system it's about truly understanding what your organization wants to deliver and how they want to deliver it so it's the culture of the organization it's providing the construct so that each and every time you do a project. And again, for our organization, it's a little bit different because we have three business units. We've got a processing lab. Uh, we've got our engineering services business, and we've got our ISO IEC 17025 accredited testing facility in that realm. The goals for each of those are diametrically opposed. You know, how do you maintain the same quality system for those three things? Uh, and it's it's through understanding truly what the word quality means and what the voice of customer is and what the customers want. Um, I'll segue slightly into the realm of testing. For me, the biggest piece of understanding quality in that is uh, when I started my career at Emerson, I looked at testing uh, through a different lens. I just left graduate school and I knew testing equipment. What I didn't know about testing equipment is there's a whole lot of stuff that can go wrong in the process from the operator to the procedure, to the device, to the calibration of the device, if you, if it's even calibrated, I had always assumed incorrectly, I might add that you, you put a sample in, you push a button or buttons and you get a perfect result on the backside. The reality is that it's the furthest thing from the truth. So I looked at a lot of the traditional testing institutions in which I would send samples to and I looked at them as gospel. And I started to to peel back the layers in the onion, and I understood that there's a lot that goes into a quality system for a test lab. And i had always held up A2LA slash ISO IEC 1725 as like the gold standard. What I learned is that those just say you have a quality system. It, it, it doesn't mean that you have a good quality system. It doesn't mean that your equipment actually puts out good data. It just means that you have a quality system. So from my perspective, being the annually retentive person that I am and being hyper-competitive, I want to have the best test lab. So what we did in our quality system is we built it around the calibration and the procedures. So every four years as a laboratory, you're required to go through something called proficiency testing, which is this blind testing. They send you a sample, you test it, you send the results to an independent third party and they score you. We do that in a lot of cases on a monthly basis to ensure that there's no drift in the calibration, there's no drift in the method and the operator and that everything fits well. It was by doing that that we learned that there's a lot of room for errors. Again, the unforced errors to pop up. There's a lot of opportunity for changes to happen that seem inconsequential on the surface, but have a true effect on the end result. Um, it. When you're dealing with equipment that's user-calibrated, an example is this thermogravimetric analysis. You're measuring the weight loss as a function of temperature. How you assign the peaks in the calibration mode of the instrument determines whether or not you can accurately measure or not. And there's multiple ways that you can do it. It's not been POKIO. We learned that the hard way. So, I mean... These are the, again, it's the devil in the details. These are the little intricacies that we've learned and we've applied so that we can truly be the best test lab that exists. And, I mean, the same thing goes for you. When you look at fixture design and you look at a quality system, you're generally going to look at the fixture design in the same way every time. But it's going to be a different application. You want to lock down those Mission critical items and ensure that you pokeyoked it so that the person can't put the the device in, you know, backwards, yep. if you will. And and even sometimes, even though you do that, you've got Bubba and Bubba uses the hammer <laughs> and you're able to do that. And, and but again, that's that's really what the quality system is is meant to do. The quality system is meant to pro- to be the guide to provide the pathway for the person so that they are empowered to do it the same way every single time. And again, to try to avoid those unforced errors. How long did it take to implement your quality system? And has
0: it been an ongoing iterative process? Or did you kind of set it up in the beginning? And then it's been pretty much static since then.
1: So I'll start with answering the second question first. Um, It changes on a daily basis. And the reality is you want to design... when a singular person designs a system, it's not going to be right. Uh, what I designed was not perfect. So your goal is to implement things that fundamentally make sense. And what I tell all of our employees all the time is if it's not right, if it's affecting your job in any way, shape or form, suggest the functional change to make it right, because that's a truly functioning system. It's a living, breathing thing meant to change as the organization changes, as the customers change and as customer needs change. So it's, it's common for us to develop a new form or procedure in, in the middle of our daily work because it's needed. You know, you learn how things change with the customer bases and what, what the market is asking for. So you address that in real time. So that's, that's the part of it. That's the second question. The first question is how long did it take to implement? Uh, You know, we basically set a line in the sand and said on this date we're going to start and we're going to collect data and we're going to see how that data changes. So it took a a couple months to come up with the system and writing up all the forms and creating the procedure trees and whatnot. Um, But as soon as you go live with a a system and and you start to get data as feedback, you know, feedback is always a gift. So anytime you get feedback from a system and you're able to implement it into the system, you're able to enhance and improve it. So, you know, do we have a, a set time frame where we say, you know, we're gonna review every single procedure? Yes, once a year. Do we truly look at them as we go forward on a, on a daily or weekly basis and evaluate whether something could be more effective? We do, is that required? No, uh, but that's, that's really philosophy that you have to look at with respect to the quality system. You can do what the standard says and follow it to a T which isn't gonna be a functioning system, or you can adopt uh, a process that enacts appropriate measures to, again, prevent those unforced errors and to adapt with the changes in the market. Um, And that allows us to be more responsive uh, rather than having... If you have a quality system that costs you time, you're in a bad situation. You want it to save you time because you're doing the same core activities the same way each and every time. How, Given that you are constantly updating your
0: quality system, how do you keep people, your team members, trained on it? It seems like that would take a long time to constantly retrain people when you know, new forms or new procedures
1: come online. It's a good question. Uh, and it's, it's a simplistic answer. It doesn't take a lot of training because I'm not the one that are is asking for the change. It's the actual employees who are empowered to actually make changes. Yeah. So if they are reaching a roadblock or there's something that's affecting them, that's where the changes are coming from because they're they're tuning into what they're doing to make it more efficient for them.
0: Okay, we're, I'm going to take a very slight deviation from quality, and then we're going to come right back to it. I, I'd I'd love to hear about How you go about getting things done, I think it's really impressive that you were able to implement this quality system. Of course, you had feedback along the way and you gather data and and it changes. But uh, if I understand correctly, initially, it was really just you that, that put this all together, the first pass anyway, in a relatively short amount of time. And I don't think that's something a lot of people can do. Which, which tells me that you probably have a system for ensuring your stuff gets done. What, what did that look like for you when you were working on, on the quality system implementation or just, you know, kind of in general?
1: Beer and a beach. <laughs> I, I mean, I, that's one thing that you get with me is just brutal honesty. So, you know, I, I told the, the team, you know, holidays are good time frames to actually work in an engineering service firm and a testing firm like ours. This year has been a little bit different with COVID and the needs continue and, and there's not really been a down period throughout the entire year. But typically our customers take hiatuses around the, the 4th of July holiday, around Thanksgiving and around Christmas. So you can actually, and, and that's what I actually call, you know, like Christmas and New Year's week is, is quality week. And I've actually tailored some of our audits around that for that specific reason, because I can actually dedicate more time to sitting down and, and preparing for those things, because I don't have the crush of other work that's going on in the background. Uh, so in this particular case, you know, our, our owner, uh, Mike Alibran and I, we sat down and he was really instrumental in the process because I used him as a sounding board. So while I generated a lot of the documents, he was brutal in his honesty as to whether or not they were functional. And his goal was, and again, this is our goal as an organization with everything that we do is you know, let's try it. Let's see what works. Let's see what doesn't work. And then we'll address it and topically change it. So you know, in this particular case, I took the 4th of July holiday uh, as the the time frame to really sit down and, and not be bothered. So I took my computer out on the beach in Charleston, South Carolina, and I took a case of beer out every day. And I worked to the point where the words started to get a little bit long and uh, <laughs> you know, it repeated.
0: I love that. That's, that. That is a brutally honest answer, uh, but also very insightful, right? I mean, beer and a beach. Okay, on, on the surface, that seems pretty simple. But if you dig a little bit deeper, I, I think what you're saying is find some quiet time without distraction and be comfortable while you're doing it. Create an environment that's comfortable for you to work in.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the little island where we go there, there was no cell service. So it's not like I could have created a hotspot to connect my computer. There you go. Yeah. And you know, you're in, you're in nature. So, you know, you have the ability to relax yourself, to calm yourself and to, to truly think clearly. And you know, I, I try to give you a, a good beer quote, but half of them are made up anyways. But. <laughs> you know that, that also helps you as well. Again, it's a bell curve and the amount of help it provides you. <laughs> There's a point of diminishing returns, but, sure. <laughs> but, but the, but the reality is when you couple all those things together, um, you're, you're able to think about how to thoughtfully put something together because the key word is thoughtful. Just throwing something on the, on a piece of paper for the sake of throwing something on a piece of paper isn't really functional. You truly have to think about how others are going to view it and, and be a little bit selfless in understanding that this is for everyone. The, the whole point is to make everybody's work a little bit less helter-skelter.
0: Okay, uh, jumping back into the quality conversation. Now, PSN is both 9001 compliant and certified, if I understand correctly. Is that right? Yep,
1: yeah, we're ISO 9001 2015 certified. That's correct.
0: Okay, what does that mean in practical terms? I mean, why why might an
1: engineering company want or need to be nine thousand one compliant? It means that you have a series of procedures and processes in place that cover what's addressed in the standard, from things like purchasing to supplier audits to internal auditing, and uh, it ensures that you have appropriate processes in place to conduct the work that you're doing. It's a little bit difficult to have an ISO 9001 quality management system for an engineering services firm. That's where a little bit of creativity comes into play because as you're aware uh, with the fixture development and whatnot, we and you have no idea what's coming through the door on any given day. Uh, that's the challenge. So you have to have a quality system that addresses that entirety of it. So. If you go to the core basic principle of our quality management system, it says a customer picks up the phone and calls us, sends an email, you know, gets a hold of us in some way, shape or form. Text message is, is a valid way in the realm of, you know, millennials and all that fun jazz. Uh, and we do get text message requests, um, but they start with a problem. And our quality management says you get a, a customer inquiry. You start by sitting down and, and as an organization, we determine can we help that need or can we can we address that need. Then, if we can, uh, or it's an opportunity that we want to partake in, you start the process of developing a proposal. Uh then you go through the proposal review, you deliver the proposal to the customer, the customer reviews it, they issue a purchase order, uh, from there the purchase order and the terms are reviewed and then you develop a test plan or a, a work scope, and that's delivered to the engineering team or the test lab or whatever you're doing. And then, you know, your work product is generated, it's reviewed, uh, your test report or your reports or whatever deliverable you have is, is formally developed and then reviewed and then delivered to the customer, and then you go through feedback. That process is the core foundation of what ISO 9001 says. It it allows you from start to finish to say, and and again, it provides customer feedback. We survey 20% of the companies that we do business with uh, to get their feedback so that we can actually incorporate it. Um, That's the whole process with ISO 9001. Do you have a system in place that covers those things? Because along the way... If you have to purchase, say, for example, we're going to mold some functional prototypes for a medical device company that's going to then take them and send them to you to develop a fixture design. You know, We need to purchase things on the outside. So we'll have a, a procedure in place for purchasing to make sure that we satisfy the requirements of the standard and that there's a check and a balance in place. That's truly what ISO 9001 says. There's a check and a balance for everything that you do. Hmm. Does... A quality system,
0: uh, especially uh, a, a 9001 compliant quality system, allow for more streamlined development when you know maybe uh, not all of, of of the formal checks and balances are are required. Maybe it's a, a really small project, and there just isn't time in the budget to 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 have all these you know checks and balances. Can you still do that and and uh, be ISO
1: 9001 certified? I think you can and the reason I say that is uh, twofold. One, by having formal processes and procedures in place, you know, if you're writing a proposal for example, going and finding the right template from the litany of things that existed previously, it it it's a time suck. So in this regard, you go to the standard format each and every time, which is pre-populated with the information that typically takes you if if it's a short burn or a quick one, you have something that's pre-populated. You have to fill out the appropriate uh, tabs or or spaces with the information to make the proposal tailored to the customer rather than starting from ground zero each and every time. Again, you control the process. You can write, uh, so this is the second part of the answer, you can actually write into your system any number of caveats to it. A good example of this is we have different project number series and we have, uh, again, we have our ISO IEC 1725 test lab. And sometimes customers will call up and say, Hey, I want one, one test. That test is, you know, 250, 300, 500, a thousand dollars, whatever. So going through that full on process is, is difficult to remain cost competitive. So, so what do you do? You can, we wrote into our system, that those test lab projects go to a specific numbered series that has a different set of requirements for them. So instead of having to develop a test plan every time, if you write the proposal the right way, the proposal is the test plan. Therefore, you don't have to create another piece of paper that takes you time to create to do the same thing that you could have done if you just did the proposal right in the first place. So by, again, using thoughtful, sequential flow and figuring out how I can augment my daily work instead of the worst thing you want to do is create a piece of paper for the sake of creating a paper piece of paper. And that's actually one of the things that I push back against the audit bodies on. And even our customers, when they audit us is they want to see a procedure for everything. Um, a good example of this, we, use, we have a Monday morning meeting every two weeks as an organization where everybody gets together for 30 to 60 minutes. And we talk through what we're doing as an organization, any trap points, any any equipment issues. Uh, And we do some educational items in there as well. Some mentoring items. And uh, our audit body asked us to create an attendance sheet if we were going to use that as part of our training seminar. And I said, why? So I'm going to forget to fill it out. And because I forget to fill it out and I didn't document it then that technically becomes a non-conformance. So why would I create a procedure for something I know that I'm not going to be successful in tracking every single time? That's creating a system that actually works versus doing everything to create paper to to cover yourself. It's non-functional. That's That's a
0: great example. Yeah. I I think the, the takeaway that I'm getting from this is that This system is designed by you, and you are allowed to put anything you want into it within, of course, some, you know, regulated guidelines, but
1: you can put anything you want into it to make it functional for you. That's exactly right. I mean, it's got to fit for your organization. It's got to fit with the context of the organization. A good example of that is is purchasing. You know, in our organization, we do everything from build prototype tools to design medical devices to run structural analysis. And and in a lot of cases, our customers are determining what components, what materials go into it. So normally if you were to write just a classic quality system from a purchasing perspective, you'd have to go do an audit for every new vendor. Okay. So why would I do an audit if the customer is asking me to purchase that material in the first place? doesn't make sense, does it? So, you know, what we've written in is exclusions that say when we're purchasing these things or a customer requires us to do X, we're not required to, we can just automatically add them to an approved supplier list. We don't have to go through the audit process for the sake of generating a piece of paper when that does nothing to determine the quality of our output. It, it's, it's immaterial. It doesn't affect the results of what we're doing. Yeah. And, and that's, that's an example of that. What, what can your team do now with the quality
0: system that it couldn't do before, or at least couldn't do as well?
1: I think from my perspective, if I was looking at this holistically, I think it's accountability. Um, you know, when you have a a system that, and I mean, PSN has been successful in, in business since 1991, um, a lot of that time period was without a formal quality system, but with more loose procedures in place, uh, a lot of documentation of things. Uh, but now, when we have an issue, and again, no organization will ever have zero nonconformances if the organization's truly functioning. Okay. Yeah. So now, when we do have a nonconformance, we can point back to the procedure that was in place and say, well, you know, why didn't we do this? And, you know, we had an issue pop up where we um, had a, a review example and had we followed our procedure, you know, we wouldn't have had the issue pop up. Those are classic examples of where you can hold folks accountable. And, and it's, it's not about discipline. It's about accountability. It's OK. You know, why didn't we do what we were supposed to do?
0: Looking back, now that the you, you have your quality system in place and it's running smoothly, it's still, you know, you're iterating, you're refining as you go, but it's it's in place and it's working. Is there anything that you would have done differently when you first started implementing the
1: system? I would have. Yes, I, That there is. I wouldn't have focused on the details as much as I wrote it. Honestly, I tried to make it perfect and I probably could have saved half the time by mm-hmm. Um, not going into as much depth because the reality is in our line of work and what we do, we, again, we don't know what's coming through the door. So creating an, a you're, you're trying to avoid unforced errors. So if if you're the quality control manager for the NFL team and you're trying to, you know, take every potential possibility into play that's going to happen in the last two minutes of a game, you're never going to be able to do that because history always creates itself. So your goal is to create stopping points at that situation where, you know, you have something new or novel pop up that allows folks to stop and and ask the appropriate questions. You know, rather than trying to straw man out every potential outcome, I would have just left it at a more basic level and, and not spend as much time on the details because, quite frankly, it, it didn't, it didn't matter. And, and it continues to not matter. Terrific answer.
0: That's very actionable. Um, there is a, a physician author named Atul Gawande, who's written some wonderful, wonderful books. One of my favorite is called the checklist manifesto. And he says, I have a, this quote here on my wall, it says, there must always be room for judgment, but judgment aided and even enhanced by procedure, which I think uh, goes hand in hand with what you're saying.
1: It does. Absolutely.
0: Okay. I've got just a couple more questions for you and I'm, I'm going to um, jump out of quality and um, to a time when you were working at, let's see, uh, the a company cleverly named Budding Analytical Laboratory, mm-hmm. where the, the focus was testing cannabis and related pharmaceutical products. Um, cannabis is is kind of a controversial topic for many people with um, uh, more and more states legalizing its use. And I wondered. What, if anything, did you learn about it strictly from a scientific standpoint that you think might be important for the general public to
1: understand? Testing is really important. Um, that's the biggest takeaway that I would provide you with. And I think you know if you're looking at and again, this is more education for customers as well, too. you know when when a when an end manufacturer or a manufacturer of a cannabis medical product or consumer product, is making them, their goal is to acquire testing at the lowest possible cost uh, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, again, the difficult part is you truly get what you pay for. What we've learned from the quality perspective is that calibration matters. You know, the, the instrument matters, the operator matters, the procedure matters, and they all are interlinked. So, it is possible for equipment to drift and change as a function of time. You know, there's nothing in any sort of quality standard that says you have to run a known spike uh, or a known assay or a known known, a standard, if you will, to check performance of equipment on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis or you know a bi monthly basis for that matter. There's nothing written into any standard that says, thou shalt do that. If you are truly approaching it from the quality perspective, you want to make sure that instrument's not drifting in real time. That costs a lot of money. So if you're going to the cheapest laboratory, the the cheapest vendor on the face of the earth for the sake of, of enhancing your profit margin... The product is going to suffer because your test results aren't going to be nearly as good as what you could get. That's what I've learned through the cannabis industry and and working through what we do from a testing perspective. Because, again, the standards, the solutions, they are expensive. And the added runtime, the added wear and tear on the equipment, it's revenue. I mean, it's true revenue. But at the same point in time, we want to be a beacon of hope for the industry to say, if you invest in in the equipment, the operators, the time and running those spikes, again, you're supposed to run proficiency testing once every four years. We're running it, if we can, on a monthly basis. We may not be submitting it to the independent authority. We are just comparing it to the results that we receive from the independent authority. But that check and balance provides you with the ability to say, yeah, my procedures are still sound. Yeah, my instrument calibration's not drifted. The instrument itself hasn't drifted. Uh, you know, everything seems to be going well. So if you do have a spurious result or a result which a customer says, yeah, I don't think that's accurate, you can actually point back to that and say, well, in the same procedure, running the same instrument, you have the same operator, and oh, by the way, we've done this thing called proficiency testing, and we've run this sample on a weekly or daily or monthly basis. And here's the results of it. So it's not drifting. So by default, it really has to be your sample.
0: <laughs> well, we're, we're running up on time here, and I certainly want to be respectful of your time. Do you have five more minutes or do we need do. to end right now? I do. Okay. All right. Great. Um, this, I I find this next question just personally very interesting. And since you worked in a kind of a pharmaceutical lab, I'm curious if you had any, any experience with it. So another compound that's getting lots of press lately is psilocybin, which is the um, uh, the, the, the chemical in magic mushrooms that makes them makes them hallucinogenic. Uh, a lot of people talking about this these days. It, it's, it's being, I think, uh, in some senses, deregulated uh, for, for medical use. Did you ever do any testing or have any experience with psilocybin?
1: I don't specifically. Um, and I'm curious where you're going to go with it.
0: I don't really know where I'm going to go with it. I just, I've heard a lot about it recently. Um, Tim Ferriss, I listened to his podcast. That's a great one. And he talks about it a lot. Um, he, not just Tim Ferriss, but a lot of people have talked about it. It's medicinal uses for treating depression and other um, um, mental and anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and then beyond that, just uh, uh, opening one's horizons or having new psychological experiences that that open your mind up to new possibilities, new ideas. It, it, it just, it seems like a really interesting, um, I, I don't even know what to call it, experience or of course there are dangers associated with it as well, right? Some people have uh, what's... Uh, the, the, the quintessential bad trip, right? Where you come out of this thing a lot worse than, than going into it. Um, so it, it's just, it's something
1: that I think really interesting and I'd like to learn more about. Sure. And you know I don't honestly have much experience in that realm specifically, but what I do want to kind of take a, a tangent on that too is as you look at chemistry and as you look at medical devices, for example, Uh, There's the European Medical Device Regulation, EUMDR, that's come into play for medical devices and the substances that go into them. Uh, There's also uh, REACH, which is a a chemical characterization and and evaluation of substances that go into devices. So you have to state that these things don't have certain substances in them. Uh, Taking that over to hemp and cannabis, there are several state crime laboratories that have equipment that's more than five years old that's not able to delineate between cannabis and hemp so uh you know what you are finding is that and some of the some of the equipment itself when i was in grad school from 2002 to 2007 it didn't exist so you are uh and, and bringing this home to the medical device realm to um, medicinal cannabis and things along those lines a lot of the equipment used to test these things didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. So you're now developing this high-end analytical equipment that didn't exist. People weren't educated formally in university in how to operate it. And a lot of venture capital laboratories are just going out and buying it and expecting you know, a random person, technician-level person, to be able to run it. What we find is that the science behind it, again, going back to the molecular level, you know, we, we have a piece of equipment called the triple quad. And what it does is it separates the individual parent and daughter ions so that you can truly separate them. So in the realm of medical devices, the, the phrase extractables and leachables drives everybody crazy. Why does it drive everybody crazy? Because you're, you're taking a device and you're putting it in a solution and you're, you're seeing what comes off of it. There's about 9,000 different ways you can contaminate that test. And and a lot of our customers grouse about, and rightly so, where did that contamination come from? Same thing with cannabis, same thing with hemp. Where did that contamination come from? Was that something that was actually introduced to the laboratory? Was that something that was introduced in the shipping process? In a lot of cases, it's both or all the above. And, you know, that's where... Uh, again, I'd I like to call it the Ron Burgundy approach to chemistry where you, know, you read what comes off the teleprompter. You know, that's, <laughs> that's where we at PSN have started to truly separate ourselves as as students of chemistry to truly understand what the customer problem is and develop those unique solutions. And if we think about the topic that you broached here at the beginning of this, uh, you know, we'll start with cannabis, we'll go with hemp, any medical device or any medical product or any pharmaceutical for that matter. You're now working with equipment that's been designed, but the methods haven't always been validated for it. So, you know, you get this new substance, how do I characterize it? Well, you've got to develop a validated method internally and, you know, a a lot of customers just expect for that to be done. They don't necessarily appreciate that. It could take weeks and even months to get a calibration curve to measure something and, again you're being asked to measure things that are on the part per billion level or the part per trillion level and guarantee that they're not there. You know, (laughs) if we can detect, and, and we can, if we can detect the perfume a person was wearing when they built the medical device, wow, that's the level of detail that goes into testing of these substances and characterization of medical devices. That's why that level of detail truly matters. And, and again, bringing this back to the quality discussion, how do you create a quality system that, that takes each and every one of those variables into play? Because it's constantly changing and we adapt as we learn more information. And one of the things we do with a lot of our customers is we like to hold summits, particularly if there's a, a specific area of work that we're working for. The, the latest craze is uh, Um, ISO 18562, which governs breathing devices and volatile organic compounds, particulates, extractables and leachables. So we have done a bunch of research internally to understand the mechanics of how the test actually works itself and how the actual sample collection methods work themselves. And we've done some fantastic science studies that you're not required to do, but we did them in the spirit of becoming a, a better service provider for our customers. And that's that's where the quality systems generally fall short is there's nothing that requires you to do that. You have to follow the standard. It's it's the organizational construct that drives how effective a quality system is because your organization, like our organization, is focused on delivering the best that we can possibly deliver for a customer. Just having a piece of paper that you put your name on and says, yep, I followed all my process steps, it's really not worth a lot. It's truly adapting it to the construct of what you're doing to ensure that you are delivering the highest fidelity results of the best possible fixture or you've captured every potential way uh, from a POCO perspective that this thing could be you know, put into a fixture. Uh, you know, that's that's the true value to the customer. Again, it's not what's required by the standard, but when you adapt your organization to ensure that you're delivering that quality, we want to be the best that theres there is. There's, nothing short of that. That's, that's our ethos. Excellent. Excellent.
0: Well, Matt, this has been just a, a a wonderful, delightful conversation. Thank you again
1: so much for, for sharing your time with us. Um, How, how
0: can people get a hold of you?
1: Sure. Uh, You can reach out to me directly through LinkedIn. Uh, You can find me, Matt Heidecker at, at PSN labs. Uh, You can go to www.psnlabs.com. There's a contact us button and uh, you know, feel free to email me at matthew.heidecker at uh, psnlabs.com.
0: Excellent. Matt, thank you again so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.